Chapter six part four of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. One hundred and twenty nine. Two. The consideration of this other question belongs properly to the second topic, which was reserved above for discussion, namely the topic of mixed goods. Mixed goods were defined above as things which, though positively good, as wholes, nevertheless contain as essential elements something intrinsically evil or ugly. And there certainly seem to be such goods. But for the proper consideration of them, it is necessary to take into account a new distinction. The distinction just expressed as being between the value which a thing possesses as a whole and that which it possesses on the whole. When mixed goods were defined as things positively good as wholes, the expression was ambiguous. It is meant that they were positively good on the whole. But it must now be observed that the value which a thing possesses on the whole may be said to be equivalent to the sum of the value which it possesses as a whole, together with the intrinsic values which may belong to any of its parts. In fact, by the value which a thing possesses as a whole, there may be meant two quite distinct things. There may be meant either, one, that value which arises solely from the combination of two or more things, or else, two, the total value formed by the addition to one of any intrinsic value which may belong to the things combined. The meaning of the distinction may perhaps be most easily seen by considering the supposed case of vindictive punishment. If it is true that the combined existence of two evils may yet constitute a less evil than would be constituted by the existence of either singly, it is plain that this can only be because there arises from the combination a positive good which is greater than the difference between the sum of the two evils and the demerit of either singly this positive good would then be the value of the whole as a whole in sense one yet if this value be not so great a good as the sum of the two evils is an evil it is plain that the value of the whole state of things will be a positive evil and this value is the value of the whole as a whole in sense two Whatever view may be taken with regard to the particular case of vindictive punishment, it is plain that we have here two distinct things, with regard to either of which a separate question may be asked in the case of every organic unity. The first of these two things may be expressed as the difference between the value of the whole thing and the sum of the value of its parts. And it is plain that where the parts have little or no intrinsic value, as in our first class of goods, this difference will be nearly or absolutely identical with the value of the whole thing. The distinction, therefore, only becomes important in the case of wholes, of which one or more parts have a great intrinsic value, positive or negative. The first of these cases, that of a whole, in which one part has a great positive value, is exemplified in our second and third classes of great unmixed goods and similarly the summum bonum is a whole of which many parts have a great positive value such cases it may be observed are also very frequent and very important objects of aesthetic judgment 
since the essential distinction between the classical and the romantic styles consists in the fact that the former aims at obtaining the greatest possible value for the whole as a whole in the sense one whereas the latter sacrifices this in order to obtain the greatest possible value for some part which is itself an organic unity it follows that we cannot declare either style to be necessarily superior since an equally good result on the whole or as a whole in sense too may be obtained by either method but the distinctly aesthetic temperament seems to be characteristic by a tendency to prefer a good result obtained by the classical to an equally good result obtained by the romantic method. 130. But what we have now to consider are cases of wholes in which one or more parts have a great negative value or great positive evils and first of all we may take the strongest cases like that of retributive punishment in which we have a whole exclusively composed of two great positive evils wickedness and pain can such a whole ever be positively good on the whole one i can see no reason to think that such wholes ever are positively good on the whole but from the fact that they may nevertheless be less evils than either of their parts taken singly it follows that they have a characteristic which is most important for the correct decision of practical questions. It follows that, quite apart from the consequences or any value which an evil may have as mere means, it may, supposing one evil already exist, be worthwhile to create another, since, by the mere creation of this second, there may be constituted a whole less bad than if the original evil had been left to exist by itself and similarly with regard to all the holes which i am about to consider it must be remembered that even if they are not goods on the whole yet where an evil already exists as in this world evils do exist the existence of the other part of these holes will constitute a thing desirable for its own sake that is to say not merely a means to future goods but one of the ends which must be taken into account in estimating what that best possible state of things is to which every right action must be a means one hundred and thirty one two but as a matter of fact i cannot avoid thinking there are holes containing something positively evil and ugly which are nevertheless great positive goods on the whole indeed it appears to be to this class that those instances of virtue which contain anything intrinsically good chiefly belong it need not of course be denied that there is sometimes included in a virtuous disposition more or less of those unmixed goods which were first discussed that is to say a real love of what is good or beautiful but the typical and characteristic virtuous dispositions so far as they are not mere means seem rather to be examples of mixed goods we may take as instances a courage and compassion which seem to belong to the second of the three classes of virtues distinguished in our last chapter and b the specifically moral sentiment by reference to which the third of those three classes was defined courage and compassion in so far as they contain an intrinsically desirable state of mind seem to involve essentially a cognition of something evil or ugly 
In the case of courage, the object of the cognition may be an evil of any of our three classes. In the case of compassion, the proper object is pain. Both these virtues, accordingly, must contain precisely the same cognitive element, which is also essential to evils of class one, and they are differentiated from these by the fact that the emotion directed to these objects is, in their case, an emotion of the same kind which was essential to evils of class two. In short, just as evils of class two seem to consist in a hatred of what was good or beautiful, and evils of class one in a love of what was evil or ugly, so these virtues involve a hatred of what is evil or ugly. Both these virtues do, no doubt, also contain other elements, and among these each contains its specific emotion but that their value does not depend solely upon these other elements, we may easily assure ourselves by considering what we should think of an attitude of endurance or of defined contempt toward an object intrinsically good or beautiful, or of the state of a man whose mind was filled with pity for the happiness of a worthy admiration. Yet pity for the undeserved sufferings of others, endurance of pain to ourselves, and a defiant hatred of evil disposition in ourselves or in others seem to be undoubtedly admirable in themselves, and if so, there are admirable things, which must be lost if there were no cognition of evil. Similarly, the specifically moral sentiment, in all cases where it has any considerable intrinsic value, appears to include a hatred of evils of the first and second classes, it is true that the emotion is here excited by the idea that an action is right or wrong and hence the object of the idea which excites it is generally not an intrinsic evil but as far as i can discover the emotion with which a conscientious man views a real or imaginary right action contains as an essential element the same emotion with which he views a wrong one it seems, indeed, that this element is necessary to make his emotion specifically moral. And the specifically moral emotion excited by the idea of a wrong action seems to me to contain essentially a more or less vague cognition of the kind of intrinsic evils, which are usually caused by wrong actions, whether they would or would not be caused by the particular action in question. I am, in fact, unable to distinguish in its main features the moral sentiment excited by the idea of rightness and wrongness, wherever it is intense, from this total state constituted by a cognition of something intrinsically evil together with the emotion of hatred directed towards it. Nor need we be surprised that this mental state should be the one chiefly associated with the idea of rightness, if we reflect on the nature of those actions which are most commonly recognized as duties. For by far the greater part of the actions of which we commonly think as duties are negative. What we feel to be our duty is to abstain from some action to which a strong natural impulse tempts us and these wrong actions in the avoidance of which duty consists are usually such as produce very immediately some bad consequence in pain to others 
while in many prominent instances the inclination which prompts us to them is itself an intrinsic evil containing as where the impulse is lust or cruelty an anticipatory enjoyment of something evil or ugly that right action does thus so frequently entail the suppression of some evil impulse is necessary to explain the plausibility of the view that virtue consists in the control of passion by reason accordingly the truth seems to be that whenever a strong moral emotion is excited by the idea of rightness this emotion is accompanied by a vague cognition of the kind of evils usually suppressed or avoided by the action which most frequently occur to us as instances of duty and that the emotion is directed towards this evil quality we may then conclude that the specific moral emotion owes almost all of its intrinsic value to the fact that it includes a cognition of evils accompanied by a hatred of them mere rightness whether truly or untruly attributed to an action seems incapable of forming the object of an emotional contemplation which shall be any great good one hundred and thirty two if this be so then we have in many prominent instances of virtue cases of a whole greatly good in itself which yet contains the cognition of something whereof the existence would be a great evil a great good is absolutely dependent for its value upon its inclusion of something evil or ugly although it does not owe its value solely to this element in it and in the case of virtues this evil object does in generally actually exist but there seemed no reason to think that when it does exist the whole state of things thus constituted is therefore the better on the whole what seems indubitable is only that the feeling contemplation of an object whose existence would be a great evil or which is ugly may be essential to a valuable whole we have another undoubted instance of this in the appreciation of tragedy but in tragedy the sufferings of leah and the vice of iago may be purely imaginary and it seems certain that if they really existed the evil thus existing while it must detract from the good consisting in a proper feeling towards them will add no positive value to that good great enough to counterbalance such a loss it does indeed seem that the existence of a true belief in the object of these mixed goods does add some value to the whole in which it is combined with them a conscious compassion for real suffering seems to be better as a whole than a compassion for sufferings merely imaginary and this may well be the case even though the evil involved in the actual suffering makes the total state of things bad on the whole and it certainly seems to be true that a false belief in the actual existence of its object makes a worse mixed good than if our state of mind were that with which we normally regard pure fiction accordingly we may conclude that the only mixed goods which are positively good on the whole are those in which the object is something which would be a great evil if it existed or which is ugly one hundred and thirty three 
with regard then to those mixed goods which consist in an appropriate attitude of the mind towards things evil or ugly and which include among their number the greater part of such virtues as have any intrinsic value whatever the following three conclusions seem to be those chiefly requiring to be emphasized one there seems no reason to think that where the object is a thing evil in itself which actually exists the total state of things is ever positively good on the whole the appropriate mental attitude towards a really existing evil contains of course an element which is absolutely identical with the same attitude towards the same evil where it is purely imaginary and this element which is common to the two cases may be a great positive good on the whole but there seems no reason to doubt that where the evil is real the amount of this real evil is always sufficient to reduce the total sum of value to a negative quantity accordingly we have no reason to maintain the paradox that an ideal world would be one in which vice and suffering must exist in order that it may contain the goods consisting in the appropriate emotion towards them it is not a positive good that suffering should exist in order that we may compassionate it or wickedness that we may hate it there is no reason to think that any actual evil whatsoever would be contained in the ideal it follows that we cannot admit the actual validity of any of the arguments commonly used in theodicies no such argument succeeds in justifying the fact that there does exist even the smallest of the many evils which this world contains the most that can be said for such arguments is that when they may appeal to the principle of organic unity their appeal is valid in principle it might be the case that the existence of evil was necessary not merely as a means but analytically to the existence of the greatest good but we have no reason to think that this is the case in any instance whatever but two there is reason to think that the cognition of things evil or ugly which are purely imaginary is essential to the ideal in this case the burden of proof lies the other way it cannot be doubted that the appreciation of tragedy is a great positive good and it seems almost equally certain that the virtues of compassion courage and self-control contain such goods and to all these the cognition of things which would be evil if they existed is analytically necessary here then we have things of which the existence must add value to any whole in which they are contained nor is it possible to assure ourselves that any whole from which they were omitted would thereby gain more in its value as a whole than it would lose by their omission we have no reason to think that any whole which did not contain them would be so good on the whole as some whole in which they were obtained the case for their inclusion in the ideal is as strong as that for the inclusion of material qualities against the inclusion of these goods nothing can be urged except a bare possibility finally three it is important to insist that as was said above these mixed virtues have a great practical value in addition to that which they possess either in themselves or as mere means where evils do exist as in this world they do the fact that they are known and properly appreciated 
constitutes a state of things having greater value as a whole even than the same appreciation of purely imaginary evils this state of things it has been said is never positively good on the whole but where the evil which reduces its total value to a negative quantity already unavoidably exists to obtain the intrinsic value which belongs to it as a whole will obviously produce a better state of affairs than if the evil had existed by itself quite apart from the good element in it which is identical with the appreciation of imaginary evils and from any ulterior consequences which its existence may bring about the case is here the same as with retributive punishment where an evil already exists it is well that it should be pitied or hated or endured according to its nature just as it may be well that some evils should be punished of course as in all practical cases it often happens that the attainment of this good is incompatible with the attainment of another and a greater one but it is important to insist that we have here a real intrinsic value which must be taken into account in calculating the greatest possible balance of intrinsic value which it is always our duty to produce one hundred and thirty four i have now completed such remarks as seemed most necessary to be made concerning intrinsic values it is obvious that for the proper answering of this the fundamental question of ethics there remains a field of investigation as wide and as difficult as was assigned to practical ethics in my last chapter there is as much to be said concerning what results are intrinsically good and in what degrees as concerning what results it is possible for us to bring about both questions demand and will repay an equally patient inquiry many of the judgments which i have made in this chapter will no doubt seem unduly arbitrary it must be confessed that some of the attributions of intrinsic value which have seemed to me to be true do not display that symmetry and system which is wont to be required of philosophers but if this be urged as an objection i may respectfully point out that it is none we have no title whatever to assume that the truth on any subject matter will display such symmetry as we desire to see or to use the common vague phrase that it will possess any particular form of unity to search for unity and system at the expense of truth is not i take it the proper business of philosophy however universally it may have been the practice of philosophers and that all truths about the universe possess to one another all the various relations which may be meant by unity can only be legitimately asserted when we have carefully distinguished those various relations and discovered what those truths are in particular we can have no title to assert that ethical truths are unified in any particular manner except in virtue of an inquiry conducted by the method which i have endeavoured to follow and to illustrate the study of ethics would no doubt be far more simple and its results far more systematic if for instance pain were an evil of exactly the same magnitude as pleasure is a good but we have no reason whatever to assume that the universe is such that ethical truths must display this kind of symmetry 
no argument against my conclusion that pleasure and pain do not thus correspond can have any weight whatever failing a careful examination of the instances which have led me to form it nevertheless i am content that the results of this chapter should be taken rather as illustrating the method which must be pursued in answering the fundamental question of ethics and the principles which must be observed than as given the correct answer to that question that things intrinsically good or bad are many and various that most of them are organic unities in the peculiar and definite sense to which i have confined the term and that our only means of deciding upon their intrinsic value and its degree is by carefully distinguishing exactly what the thing is about which we ask the question and then look to see whether it has or has not the unique predicate good in any of its various degrees these are the conclusion upon the truth of which i desire to insist similarly in my last chapter with regard to the question what ought we to do i have endeavoured rather to show exactly what is the meaning of the question and what difficulties must consequently be faced in answering it than to prove that any particular answers are true and that these two questions having precisely the nature which i have signed to them are the questions which it is the object of ethics to answer may be regarded as the main result of the preceding chapters these are the questions which ethical philosophers have always been mainly concerned to answer although they have not recognized what their question was what predicate they were asserting to attach to things the practice of asking what things are virtues or duties without distinguishing what these terms mean the practice of asking what ought to be here and now without distinguishing whether as means or end for its own sake or for that of its results the search for one single criterion of right and wrong without the recognition that in order to discover a criterion we must first know what things are right and wrong and the neglect of the principle of organic unities these sources of error have hitherto been almost universally prevalent in ethics the conscious endeavour to avoid them all and to apply to all the ordinary objects of ethical judgments these two questions and these only has it intrinsic value and is it a means to the best possible this attempt as far as i know is entirely new and its results when compared with those habitual to moral philosophers are certainly sufficiently surprising that to common sense they will not appear so strange i venture to hope and believe it is i think much to be desired that the labour commonly devoted to answering such questions as whether certain ends are more or less comprehensive or more or less consistent with one another questions which even if a precise meaning were given to them are wholly irrelevant to the proof of any ethical conclusion should be diverted to the separate investigation of these two clear problems one hundred and thirty five the main object of this chapter has been to define roughly the class of things among which we may expect to find either great intrinsic goods or great intrinsic evils and particularly to point out that there is a vast variety of such things and that the simplest of them are with one exception 
highly complex wholes composed of parts which have little or no value in themselves all of them involve consciousness of an object which is itself usually highly complex and almost all involve also an emotional attitude towards this object but though they thus have certain characteristics in common the vast variety of qualities in respect of which they differ from one another are equally essential to their value neither the generic character of all nor the specific character of each is either greatly good or greatly evil by itself they owe their value or demerit in each case to the presence of both my discussion falls into three main divisions dealing respectively one with unmixed goods two with evils and three with mixed goods one unmixed goods may all be said to consist in the love of beautiful things or of good persons but the number of different goods of this kind is as great as that of beautiful objects and they are also differentiated from one another by the different emotions appropriate to different objects these goods are undoubtedly good even where the things or persons loved are imaginary but it was urged that where the thing or person is real and is believed to be so these two facts together when combined with the mere love of the qualities in question constitute a whole which is greatly better than that mere love having an additional value quite distinct from that which belongs to the existence of the object where that object is a good person finally it was pointed out that the love of mental qualities by themselves does not seem to be so great a good as that of mental and material qualities together and that in any case an immense number of the best things are or include a love of material qualities two great evils may be said to consist either a in the love of what is evil or ugly or b in the hatred of what is good or beautiful or c in the consciousness of pain thus the consciousness of pain if it be a great evil is the only exception to the rule that all great goods and great evils involve both a cognition and an emotion directed towards its object three mixed goods are those which include some element which is evil or ugly they may be said to consist either in hatred of what is ugly or of evils of classes a and b or in compassion for pain but where they include an evil which actually exists its demerit seems to be always great enough to outweigh the positive value which they possess the end end of principia ethica by g e moore